Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Gelbeck, MD, Associate Professor in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Occupational Medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. We are recording from the 43rd Annual Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California, where Dr. Gelbeck spoke about understanding sleep in critically ill patients. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gelbeck. So you're just joining us shortly after your presentation along with your colleagues, uh, John Devlin and Paula Watson, a session regarding understanding sleep in critically ill patients. Uh-huh. Tell me, I guess this is a relatively young field, I would say, in critical care. Why should the listeners feel that you know, sleep and studying sleep and understanding sleep in critical patients is important? So, so that's a great question. First off, thanks for having me, and thanks to the SCCM for the chance to talk about this topic. We know that good sleep is vital in health, and throughout much of human history, sleep actually was regarded as more a, a, akin to death or, or maybe a photo negative of, of wakefulness. At best, a passive thing, and at, and at worst, something that, that shared a lot of similarities with death. But we actually know that good sleep's vital to health. Sleep's actually an active process. It's not just a passive process. It also used to be said that sleep is by the brain and for the brain. We know that you need to sleep to maintain alertness, to maintain cognitive function. But we also know that sleep is for the whole body. So sleep's not only necessary for keeping the brain active, but the mechanisms involved in sleep in the circadian timing system are interdigitated throughout the whole body and involved in, a, in processes as diverse as metabolism, cardiovascular function, immunity, cancer surveillance. And so it's not hard to imagine that something this important that happens every day that's involved in this many bodily process could be relevant to the health of our, of our six patients. Take, for example, the problem of delirium. We know that delirium during critical illness is associated with long-term neuropsychiatric problems. There's reasons to believe that sleep disruption may contribute to the pathogenesis of delirium. Sleep and circadian disruption may also increase patient sensitivity to the effects of sedatives and narcotics, potentially delaying extubation and interfering with efforts to rehabilitate the patient. A very obvious, more controlled example of this problem is the, the problem of unrecognized obstructive sleep apnea in the perioperative setting. Mm-hmm. This has become a major initiative on the part of surgeons and anesthesiologists to screen patients for obstructive sleep apnea before major surgery. And one of the reasons is we know that they have more complications postoperatively. So if we think of how patients who are sleep deprived are harmed in that setting, we can imagine other ways that they could be harmed in the medical ICU setting. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg, the examples that I've given you. But as you said, it's a young field. It's really only recently that sleep and circadian rhythms have received much scrutiny. And that's probably partly due to the methodologic and the logistical challenges of studying sleep in the ICU environment. But lately, a number of investigators have been chipping away at this problem, and we heard some exciting work in today's session. The final thing I would say is that if sleep matters even just a little in this population, given that everyone needs sleep, Everyone needs sleep daily, and there are 5 million patients admitted to the U.S. alone with critical illness every year. If sleep matters even a little, improving sleep could have outsized effects on on patient outcomes. It's interesting. I'm just, as you were talking, I'm thinking about some of my colleagues who I've heard tell patients and families, you're not here to sleep. During the day, I want you up and walking, and I think many of us really don't think 
of sleep as being that crucial, but it, it certainly seems as though there's more and more evidence that suggests it is. I would also endorse that during the day, they need to be up and walking. That's the other side of the coin, and we can't really talk about good sleep without talking about good wakefulness. We need to have an environment during the day that's conducive to activity, that keeps the patients active, alert, animated, and if they have those better days, those stronger days, they'll also have those better nights. There's no question that part of the problem is that there's just a lot of work to be done on these patients. And so we've dispersed the work of critical care over a 24-hour period. I can think back to an old example from back when I was a resident in my, my last institution. The day shifts would retake the endotracheal tube, and the night shift would do the baths. It was right. simply a division of labor, and that's an example of just taking a lot of work and spreading it out over a 24-hour period. But it doesn't mean that we can't chip away at the problem and make stronger day-night routines. Well, recognizing the fact that you're still going to have to intervene at 2 o'clock in the morning if your patient drops his pressure. So the first talk was by Professor Devlin regarding impact of sedation on sleep in the ICU and its relationship to delirium. Can you tell us a little bit more about his talk and what some of the points he made? Sure. So he gave an excellent talk reviewing a number of factors that we think are responsible for poor sleep quality in our patients. And here it's worth highlighting that it's, it's not just one thing for the typical patient that impacts their sleep negatively. It's going to depend on on the patient, but in some cases it may be noise, in some cases it may be the ventilator, in some cases it may be the underlying illness, or perhaps the sedation uh, and the way it's used, and in other patients it may be all of them. Again, with you talked about noise levels and in ICUs and showed us some really sobering data on how noisy the typical ICU is. In fact, you showed one slide that noise levels occasionally reach the level of a jackhammer, which is noisy enough. We also know just from extension from research in non-ICU populations that it's not also just the magnitude of the noise, but the quality of the noise. And certain noises are more disturbing than others. Certain alarms, for instance, are designed to be disturbing so as to to awaken us or to get our attention. So the the ICU environment is filled with noise-creating devices, whether they be the alarms on the pumps or whether they be the alarms on the monitor or the gentleman buffing the floor at 2 o'clock in the morning. So there are a lot of opportunities to intervene to, to reduce noise levels. He also spent some time reviewing the effects of sedation on sleep. And here I should say that it's not the case that all sedation is bad where sleep is concerned. If you're breathless, if you're in pain, receiving a sedative, an analgesic, may help you sleep. But we also know that that sedation's not the same as sleep, and so recent efforts to minimize the harm caused by these agents probably will result in improved sleep quality as well, though this hasn't been shown. So he showed us several slides that indicate that many of the agents we commonly use in the ICU tend to suppress the deeper, more restorative parts of sleep, like slow-wave sleep and like REM. And we know, for instance, that narcotics are powerful suppressors of REM sleep. The recent 2013 SCCM clinical practice guidelines for pain, agitation, and delirium recommend an analgesia-first strategy in critically ill patients, and they also tend to recommend using non-benzodiazepine sedatives like propofol or dexmedetomidine over sedation with benzos, given a pretty large body of literature at this point showing that benzodiazepines are are to be avoided when possible in, in critically ill patients. So it could be that many of the efforts to enhance sleep in critically ill patients will dovetail nicely with efforts to improve sedation quality anyway. Uh, dexmedetomidine is an agent that might give us 
a more natural sleep-like state, and he showed us some promising data along these lines. There are reasons to think that different sedatives will have different effects based on their mechanism on sleep, and some may be actually positive and some may be negatively influencing sleep. Yeah, that's right. So, so there's no single agent that probably restores the full complement of benefits of normal sleep. If you look at, at studies that have been done on anesthetics or on sedatives where people receive propofol, for instance, or mice that receive propofol, it does have some effect at dissipating sleep drive. But if you look at analyses of their effects on the brain and on behavior, it's clear that it's not normal sleep. And in fact, the recent the propofol misadventures with Michael Jackson are a really good example of this. And so uh, what has come out in the trial is that he received propofol nightly for about 40 consecutive days. And near the end of this period, he had experienced really dramatic physical and mental deterioration. And some of the experts that testified at the trial, including Professor Seisler, who's a well-known sleep authority at Harvard, testified to the, uh, the fact that sedation is, is kind of like cheap, cheap calories. It's, it's not a, uh, gives you a short-term benefit, but it doesn't give you the full complement of, of benefits of normal sleep. So we need sedatives, we need analgesics, they're necessary for what we do, but we need to find the, the right kind and the right way to administer these drugs. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was not aware of the, some of the nuances of that case. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it's actually potentially quite quite relevant to the experience yeah, very of, much so. of our ICU patients. Yeah, really interesting. I, I should Sorry. say also that Professor Devlin spent some time talking about the ventilator. Obviously, we need the ventilator, and our patients benefit from this device, but they will benefit from it more from a sleep perspective if we can figure out how best to set it so that we achieve our primary goals of resting the patient, avoiding lung injury, but also enhancing sleep. And so there's no ventilator algorithm circuitry that can mimic what the brainstem does, which is to to change breathing in response to different sleep states. So your ventilatory response to CO2, for instance, changes depending on whether you're in light sleep or deep sleep or REM. And so you may have a patient who's comfortable on the ventilator in in one sleep state, but tries to transition to another sleep state, perhaps breathes more or more regularly if they're going into REM, and suddenly becomes desynchronous with the ventilator and arouses. So we're not at the point where we can solve that problem, but it does seen in pretty small studies that buying cyclo-assist control ventilation and proportional assist ventilation might engender less sleep disruption than pressure support ventilation. But this is really an emerging field. So controlled modes, you're saying, would have less impact on sleep than a pressure support mode or a spontaneous mode? Yeah, and, and maybe that seems, seems a little counterintuitive, yeah. right? Because we tend to think, or the way that I sometimes describe pressure support to my residents and students is the patient sets the pattern of breathing, but it's like they're walking up the hill with their hand in the back. And so it seems so conducive, perhaps, to good sleep. But in the studies that have been done, many patients seem to hyperventilate on pressure support if the support is excessive. And then that tends to cause an apnea, which causes an arousal. And so, broadly speaking, patients can have sleep disruption from the ventilator for for three reasons. One, if they're air hungry, so if the ventilator's not meeting their demands, then obviously they'll be agitated and they'll be awake. Secondly, if they're overventilated, in the example I just gave on pressure support ventilation, if you're receiving excessive support, then it can provoke apneas and arousals. Or thirdly, if your neuroinspiratory time doesn't match your mechanical ventilatory time, broadly speaking, then that can provoke an arousal too. 
So there's some interesting work that's being done in this, this area. They're, they're all small stu- studies, and it's a little bit difficult to come away with blanket conclusions about what to do right now. In fact, a question came up in question and answer period at the end as to what to do with the patient at night. And basically, we all agreed that although assist control ventilation tends to perform better than pressure support in several of these studies, if we had a patient who was perfectly comfortable on pressure support, when the nighttime rolled around, many of us would still be inclined to leave them on that right. of the night. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is interesting. It's, it's quite counterintuitive that what I would normally think, but uh, I guess when we talk about this rest mode, uh, putting pack phone back on rest mode, we're thinking about sleep as well. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Different kind of rest. Right. So you spoke a fair amount about circadian rhythms, which I found really interesting, and interventions perhaps that we can use to enhance, um, I guess, quality sleep is, is maybe a good term, and, uh, and their impacts on circadian rhythms. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So it's worth remembering that normal sleep is a product of two processes. One is homeostatic drive to sleep, and that's a drive that increases the longer we're awake. And then we have a second process, which is our circadian timing system. And so that's a roughly 24-hour period of variable alertness that interacts with the homeostatic process to produce sleep and wakefulness. And so the circadian timing system is responsible, for instance, for that second wind that we often get in the early evening hours. We have an increase in alertness several hours before our habitual bedtime. That's mediated by our circadian timing system. So circadian rhythms matter because alterations in their time or their amplitude can affect sleep. And so this is something that's familiar to anyone who's experienced jet lag. So your body clock hasn't yet adjusted to the new schedule. And so you're trying to sleep at a time that your circadian timing system is telling you you shouldn't be sleeping. Or conversely, you start to feel very sleepy during the day when you're trying to engage in activities at your, your new location. So we, we did a study to see if the circadian rhythms of mechanically ventilated patients were, were normal or altered and, and whether not they exhibit a normal temporal organization of sleep generally. What we found was that most of the patients we studied actually had a circadian rhythm, which is pretty interesting given the fact that they exhibit lots of other disorganization in their physiology, but most of them actually had an intact circadian rhythm. But their rhythms were all over the place, were highly variable, and most of them were phase delayed. So we also looked at their EEG, and there was really no relationship between the melatonin-based circadian rhythm and various quantitative EEG measures. So in summary, we saw evidence of a very profound temporal disorganization in, in these patients. And these findings also suggested that our patients were not synchronized to the ICU environment. Dr. Gazendum and his colleagues arrived at similar results in a paper that they published this past year. And in their study, the alterations in circadian rhythmicity were correlated with severity of illness. So the sicker you were, the more severe the alterations were in circadian timing. So how much of that is due to the environment and the therapies that are associated with being sicker and how much is due to the illness itself is, is not clear. Is it the illness itself or is it the number of interventions that those folks are receiving? Mm-hmm. It's, I guess it's, that's probably hard to tease out. Yeah, that's a good question. We don't we don't know the answer to that yet. Certainly, we know that some illnesses themselves are associated with alterations in circadian timing. So there was an interesting study published a few years ago where endotoxin injection in, in normal volunteers seemed to 
uncouple the relationship between the central clock in our brain and peripheral clocks and white blood cells, causing a form of, of circadian misalignment. So illness itself can have effects, but we all know that the sicker you are, the more is going on in your room in general. You buy a ventilator, you get sedation, you get lots of blood draws, you get people looking at you at 2 o'clock in the morning, and so it's been difficult to, to tease that out so far. And I wonder, as I was your slides in terms of following melatonin levels regarding the circadian rhythm, if there's any literature looking at the adrenal cortical axis and the pituitary axis, adrenal cortical pituitary axis and sleep in the ICU or how that might be impacted? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And one of the things that I took away from this study, just as a very simple beginning, was I don't know what a morning cortisol level is in my patients because I don't know what their morning is. So in our study, we had patients whose biological morning, what their circadian timing system said was morning, was completely inverted from solar time in our, in our ICU. Said another way, we had a patient whose biological rest period, according to their melatonin profile, would begin at 7 o'clock in the morning. Typical change of shift, right, when the day is getting started. So if you send a cortisol level off on your ICU patient, you could be assaying a cortisol level that is from the biological night, from the biological day, we have no idea. And in fact, the potential influence of this circadian disruption on metabolism really hasn't been explored yet, but we know that circadian misalignment in normal healthy volunteers and sleep curtailment in normal healthy volunteers can cause insulin resistance as well as hypercortisolemia. So it could be that sleep deprivation and and circadian disruption actually contributes to some of the metabolic problems that we see in critically ill patients. That's really interesting, yeah. It really opens up a whole new world of thought that to really as you dive deeper. It's really interesting. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. So that was it in your institution, a single-center quality improvement study that you talked about? Uh, so, so that was actually done by Baron Camder and his colleagues at Johns Hopkins. Dale Needham's group. So they did a really interesting study where they used a structured QI process to try and improve sleep quality in their ICU patients. And the the two major things they measured were self-reported sleep quality as well as delirium. And so their hypothesis was that this QI project would improve sleep quality and reduce the impact and number of days of delirium through improved sleep. And what they found was that although it didn't seem to have any effect on self-reported sleep quality, that it was associated with improvements in the incidence of delirium and coma, as well as daily delirium coma-free status, which is a pretty exciting result. And there were only 300 patients in the study, and so their ability to show that in 300 patients with a low-cost, almost zero-cost Bedside intervention is is very exciting, I think. Now, it's a single center. It's a before-after design, and so its findings probably need to be reproduced, but there's a lot of strengths to the study, and it's a good example of an interdisciplinary effort to enhance sleep through practical measures that can mostly be done at the bedside. And, and what were those those measures, those interventions that they undertook? Yeah, so they had, a, they had a tiered process. They had three stages. The first stage was that they worked on the ICU environment. So they try to make day a stronger day and night a stronger night. 
They would try enhance light levels during the day, minimize light at night, minimize noise at night, batch nursing care, move discretionary mm-hmm. items out of the nighttime period. So during the second stage, they rolled out some non-pharmacologic sleep aids. They would offer earplugs, eye masks, tranquil music at bedtime for non-delirious patients. And although these weren't widely used by the patients, it, it could be that just offering that to patients helps them improve their, their sense of control in that environment as well. The third stage was that they issued a pharmacologic sleep aid guideline. So they discourage medications known to alter sleep and precipitate delirium like benzodiazepines. And they recommended a Zolpidem for patients without delirium and haloperidol or atypical antipsychotics for patients with delirium. So the other thing that's worth saying is the mechanism of improvement in delirium obviously can't be clearly attributed to improved sleep because it's a multifaceted intervention that might have reduced delirium in other ways. But again, still, it's a very, very promising study that, that needs to be needs to be built on by other investigators. You mentioned certainly the effect of light on sleep. Um, I think you, you mm-hmm. expanded on that in your, in your talk. Can you tell us I mean, how important is changes in the environment in terms of light uh, important regarding sleep cycles? Right. So light is hugely important. It is the chief way by which we set our body clock to solar time. It's the most important Z-giver, which is the German word for time giver. There are other weaker ways to entrain your, your body clock, social interactions, food, but light is by far the most powerful way. And so one of the potential problems in the ICU is not just that there's excessive light at night in many ICUs, but there's inadequate light during the day. So if light's the main way that we set our body clock, and I'm a mechanically ventilated patient who's sedated, and it's morning, and morning is the best time for me to be exposed to light in order to entrain my circadian timing system to the environment. If my eyes are closed and my room is dark, then I've missed that opportunity to entrain. Similarly, we know that while light in the early morning hours prepares our body for an earlier day, light in the late evening hours prepares our body for a later day. That's why working on our laptops and checking email and looking at our, our personal devices, like many of us do, late at night is, is not good for sleep. It actually has two effects. It acutely suppresses melatonin production, which makes it harder to go to sleep at the time, and it also can phase delay our our body rhythm, shifting our clock to the right and making it harder to get up the next morning. So the same thing could happen with the nighttime bath, for instance. So if someone's given a bath at at 2 o'clock in the morning and the big bright bathing lights come on at that time, that is an ill-timed light exposure. Another example would be with overseas travel. So if you've had the opportunity to travel, say, from Chicago to England, let's say, if you go on an overnight flight and leave at 9 p.m., what typically happens when you get about an hour or so out of out of London? Well, they typically turn the, the cabin lights on, right? And the idea there is a, is a well-intentioned one. They're, the idea is that they're trying to, number one, get you to adjust to the new time as rapidly as possible, and number two, serve you breakfast, right? And not serve you breakfast in total darkness. But the problem is, the time that you are receiving that light exposure is at a point for most people where it's going to phase delay you. So the crossover point for receiving that light is around 3 o'clock or so in the morning for someone with the usual usual schedule. So that light exposure you're getting in the cabin before you arrive 
in London is actually counterproductive. It, it serves to move your clock westward at the same time that you're actually trying to move your clock eastward. And so that's why I subjected myself and my family to, to wearing sunglasses when we went to Great Britain recently for a couple of hours until you reach a point where mm-hmm. it's the, the light exposure is better time. So, so there are a lot of opportunities to receive light at the wrong time and to not receive light at the right time in the ICU. Did you show both data in terms of shifting of circadian rhythms as well as suppression of circadian rhythms? So we're doing a study right now where we're examining the effect of time light exposure on the circadian rhythms of critically ill patients. And so this is unpublished data, hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. But with the idea that most of our patients are phase delayed, we have a study protocol where we ensure adequate exposure to ambient light between the hours of 9 and 12 in the morning. And the reason we picked a somewhat later time was actually because we were worried if we picked too early a time, we'd actually push some patients the wrong direction based on the fact that they're phase delayed. So we have some promising data that shows that we can actually improve circadian timing and strengthen circadian luminosity with appropriate light exposure in the morning. And so is it simply turning on the lights and turning off the lights, or is it a more complicated intervention? So what we do in this study is we measure the light at the bedside at the level of the patient's eyes with a pretty inexpensive, commercially available light meter. And if the light is inadequate, as it is in some of the rooms in our ICU, due to architectural features, not having good light fixtures, not having a good window, maybe it's overcast outside, then we'll supplement the light with a lamp. If, on the other hand, we find that in that room on that day, the light exposure is is adequate, then we won't supplement it. So this highlights the issue that most ICUs have not really been designed with this in mind, and certainly within our own ICU, we have a huge variety in the lighting architecture for each individual patient. We also have rooms where there's actually great light in the room. It's just not anywhere that the patient can see. (laughs) And, And to some extent, that's understandable because, of course, we want our patients generally facing the hallway, right? Or at least 90 degrees. We certainly don't want them facing away from us, so we can't see their face, we can't see their endotracheal tube. But in many of the rooms in our ICU, the window's off behind them and to the side, and so mm-hmm. it really doesn't contribute much to the, the patient's light exposure. There's certainly a lot to think about if you get the opportunity to design a new ICU. Right. Again, the more you, the more you think about it, our entire world of ICU is really designed to avoid sleep. There's, I guess there's a lot of interventions that we could make in terms of lighting, in terms of personnel. Yeah, I think we've had this thought that there are greater priorities for our mm-hmm. patients. And and that's understandable to some extent because they certainly come in really sick. They have a lot of needs. But I think we're also learning that there's some low-hanging fruit that we could pick that would really improve our patients' sleep and, and strengthen their circadian rhythms and hopefully improve their outcomes as well. And I guess is that where Paula Watson kind of led to in terms of recovery from critical illness and its uh, relationship to sleep? That's right. So she gave a a great talk on a topic that's pretty fascinating and that 
we as a community are only beginning to explore, which is how do our patients sleep after they leave intensive care. We actually know that it's, that poor sleep during intensive care is one of the most frequently cited negative experiences of patients when they're interviewed about their illness after the illness. She actually related a really touching personal anecdote of a patient she'd recently cared for whose wife said that he was afraid to go to sleep because every time he would go to sleep, he'd have these horrible nightmares and he'd wake up screaming. So really compelling disturbing stories of what what happens to some patients after intensive care. And of course, sometimes this goes along with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. But there isn't much of a literature on sleep per se after intensive care. She reviewed what we do know, that sleep disturbances are common after intensive care, that many patients experience changes in sleep quality over time. And there's a small study that showed that Symptoms of insomnia were associated with reduced quality of life and more psychological recovery. We don't really know what causes these disturbances, and sleep has not been objectively measured after critical illness. And this matters for a whole bunch of reasons. Of course, we don't want our patients to suffer. Having poor sleep is inherently distressing. But it's also the case that sleep abnormalities may partly mediate long-term neuropsychiatric problems after critical illness. So Dr. Watson shared with us some data that's just hot off the press the last few days. It's uh, as yet unpublished, but it's an exciting project that she and her colleagues are conducting at Vanderbilt. This is part of a study they're doing examining the determinants of long-term cognitive impairment after critical illness, and Dr. Penharapand issued a report on on this cohort in the New England Journal this past year. So they enrolled a subset of these patients in a study where they underwent actigraphy, which is wearing a a watch that measures movement, and you can infer sleep from the lack of movement with this device, where they wore actigraphy for a week prior to their three-month neuropsychiatric assessment. And so, uh, again, the they're, they're not done analyzing it, and it hasn't been uh, peer-reviewed yet, but a couple of goals in the study, one was to characterize sleep quality in their subjects at three months post-critical illness, and another goal was to examine if there's a relationship between in-hospital delirium and poor sleep quality. Mm-hmm. And they showed some really uh, interesting and, and actually kind of provocative data uh, where sleep after critical illness is concerned, and I look forward to seeing it in a published manuscript. So I'm, I'm thinking, is there some practical knowledge that folks should be uh, implementing now or some simple ideas that you'd recommend to intensivists at this point and folks that are running intensive care units or folks that are, are truly designing new intensive care units, things that you might want them to take home as a message to begin now? So I think until we have more and be- better data about how to specifically improve our patients' sleep, and about the kinds of interventions that would improve clinical outcomes in the patient experience. I think a starting point is to view the creation of strong day-night routines as something that every patient should experience rather than something that is reactive. In other words, clinicians, nurses, doctors are accustomed to trying to create stronger day-night routines when someone sundowns, right? 
So if we think outside the ICU, we just think of an older patient with maybe some pre-existing cognitive impairment who comes in the hospital and becomes confused. We've all taken care of those patients, and what's one of the things that we, we always talk about? We talk about opening the blinds, keeping them awake during the day, stopping the blood draws during the middle of the night, basically creating a, uh, an environment that optimizes wakefulness and sleep. But my view would be that that's something that shouldn't be reactive, but something that we should provide as, as a matter of routine. And we can all look in our own units, myself included, at the complexities involved in creating that, that kind of environment. But I think there's a lot of interest amongst clinicians in improving the environment for sleep and wakefulness. And I think the, I think the effort is well worth our time. Yes, I mean, this has been really enlightening for myself. I really appreciate your time, and I've, again, learned learned quite a bit and certainly look forward to uh, some uh, further research in this area. It does seem like a big, wide-open area of investigation. Yeah, I think so. I think we're just getting started. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015, in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.